Hello, everybody. Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 13th episode of the RIT podcast, the first post-election edition of the podcast. The results are in, and they look uh, pretty familiar, but that doesn't mean this election won't have significant consequences for the future of Canadian politics. So to talk about that, I'm joined again by the CBC's Aaron Wary. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Eric. You were in Montreal on election night uh, covering the Liberals. What was the mood like before the results came in and then after they came in? Uh, I think... Bef- I, I think before there was uh, a mix of <laughs> optimism and apprehension. I don't know that anyone was really quite positive how things were going to go and, and how wide the spread would be between them and the Conservatives. I think there was a sense, you know, like some of the best guesses I heard that kind of going into election night were that the Liberals might finish somewhere in the 140s, which would obviously be down from 2019. and could be potentially really close with the Conservatives. And, you know, you and others had pointed out that the Conservatives still had a, you know, 25 to 30% chance of, of finishing with the most seats. So I think there was a fair bit of, there was optimism. I think there was a sense that they were gonna end up with the most seats, but it wasn't a calm, oh, this one's in the bag, we're good. And then afterwards, I think, because of the apprehension going in, I think it was a lot of relief. I think it was just sort of like, we made it through that. Okay. You know, I think they were happy about the victory. I think they were happy at how uh, relatively decisive it was, you know, maybe even a bit defensive about the idea that it wasn't as big as it, as it should have been. But I think overwhelmingly it was just a sort of like, okay, we got through this, we got it done. Uh, You know, we pulled it out out of our hat once again. It's a, a little bit of a near-death experience, maybe, that they, you know, there is a the realization that they actually could have lost this. And hey, yes. look, we didn't. We actually, you know, got another mandate that's a lot like the last one. Um, and we saw that like some of the some of the takes very soon after were, you know, that this was a bad result for the liberals because they didn't get their majority government. But as we're seeing, you know, reporting about O'Toole having some internal issues, uh, you know things are going to change. So do you think this will be remembered, not, you know, this week or next week, but in the future as just a win or as something else? I think that as time goes on, it's very possible that this result looked better than it maybe did on election night. I think the the impulse on election night was to say Trudeau didn't get his majority. He's weak. He's weaker than we thought going into this campaign. Uh, he comes out of this uh, a sort of diminished politician. And, uh, you know, this could foretell bad things ahead for the Liberals. And I think as time goes on, you start to pick apart the results a bit. And you go, well, they picked up seats in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. They uh, won some seats. They won uh, some seats in, B- in British Columbia that you maybe wouldn't have predicted they would win. And they, to my surprise, really, like they have two seats in, in Alberta again. I don't know if I ever would have imagined the Trudeau Liberals having two seats in Alberta again. And when you look across the aisle, you go, well, you know, Aaron O'Toole is going to have to have to fight for his job. Jagmeet Singh and the NDP don't seem to have made any significant gains. And so there are going to be questions about their campaign. The Greens uh, obviously are diminished. And the Bloc Québécois, 
is still there, but it doesn't feel like this was a sort of ringing endorsement of their campaign. I mean, the, the conventional wisdom starts to be that, that a lot of that result turned on, you know, a question from a moder- from the moderator in the English language debate. And it, so you start to kind of look around and you go, well, you know, a win, as I and others have said, a win is a win. And there's not gonna be a real appetite, I don't think for, for an election in the foreseeable future especially because the conservatives, the NDP just spent the last five weeks saying how unnecessary this election was. So, you know, maybe Trudeau comes out of this with an, with an okay hand to play actually. And as we saw yesterday too, you know, Doug Ford comes out and in his first post-election comment says, yeah, we want to make a deal on childcare. And so I don't like, I don't know that Ford comes out and says that if, uh, the result is weaker for the Liberals. And uh, so, you know, Trudeau gets to come in now and make some deals on trial care, advance things on that, and implement some policy, presumably with, you know, NDP or, or block cooperation, and stick around for at least two more years and get some stuff done. I, and, you know, when you look at all the alternatives, yeah, maybe it would have been, it obviously would have been better for them if they had had a majority. But I don't know that. I don't know that winning 158 seats should be treated as a, as a real setback for them. But you, you mentioned how this could work in Parliament. Um, and that's a question I have, because I think uh, the cynical kind of reaction and, and the knee-jerk reaction that I think even I had was, you know, oh, I guess we're going to be doing this again very soon. But then I was thinking about it. Well, actually, I'm not so sure about that, because the Liberals, I think, are going to be extremely reticent to risk another early election call. Um, so that's almost off the table for them. And now the opposition parties would, as you said, they just campaigned a, on not having an, an election. Would they want to risk the blowback? That seems like it was a, a real thing in this campaign of calling or forcing an election. So it's a little bit of a standoff. I'm not sure if either of them are. It's not a question of who's going to blink first. It's whether any of them have the, you know, want to be a gambler and take a shot yeah. on another early call. So maybe this maybe this problem actually survives kind of long. Yeah, I like, I don't, uh, you know, the usual math, right, is that, oh, well, a minority parliament's only going to last two years. I would bet the over on this one because I, like, I just think that there's not, there just isn't, the, 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 the lingering feeling from this election is going to be don't call another election and for all sides. And, you know, that can change if there's a huge scandal or a huge problem or, you know, an economic crisis or, or, or something that kind of really damages the liberals, then the opposition parties might throw caution to the wind and, and wind and, and make a move. But, you know, in the meantime, I like assuming that kind of things are as they are right now, there's not an, I, I don't know how much of an, of an appetite the public's even going to have for sort of saber rattling and threats of election. I think, uh, mm. I think I think it's possible the public could end up having uh, feeling pretty uh, negatively towards a party that seems to be needlessly uh, getting in the way of things. I mean, uh, you know, if the message of this part of this election was sort of like, yeah, actually, we kind of like the way things were. So just go back to work. I would I think if I was another party, barring a major change in public opinion that's noticeable in the polls, I think I'd be pretty loath to try to <laughs> to try to say, well, actually, how about we have another election? Does this then open up some opportunity for Trudeau to implement some last kind of things as, as like a legacy item? Because when you think about his father 
accomplished kind of a lot in the first uh, in the in the 80s in his last term. Um, does that give him time for that to then try to get these things done and then step aside or go for another election? I, I'm I, I'm not sure anymore. I, I'm wavering a little bit on the on you know the idea that Trudeau's days are numbered. Yeah, I don't. Again, I think that also we can also sort of overplay that idea. Like I, I do. I, I've never really gotten the sense that the Trudeau government or that Trudeau himself is kind of built for uh, the long haul. Uh, you know, like my former colleague Paul Wells wrote that book about Stephen Harper entitled, you know, The Longer I'm Prime Minister. And the basis, the thinking there was that Stephen Harper saw value in longevity. If he, the longer he stayed as prime minister, the more things he could do and the more he could uh, uh, get people used to there being a conservative government in power. Uh, Justin Trudeau's personality is so different and the way he, po- he he does politics is so different and he's so front and center and he's trying to be so active on so many fronts that I don't think that lends itself to governing for a decade or 15 years or something like that. So I've kind of always wondered at what point Trudeau would walk away. And having won now three elections, you can look at it and say, you know, you've won three elections, but your popular vote support has never gotten back to where it was in 2015. How risky would it be to go through, in a, go through a fourth election? You know, do you want to risk defeat? Uh, and maybe on the other hand, maybe it would be smart to start setting up some succession planning. Uh, but at the same time, like, let's not rule that out and let's not rule out the possibility that he goes into a fourth election because uh, I think the other thing that kind of got overstated it as this campaign wore on were sort of his own personal negatives, his personal image. Like, yes, if you look at Abacus's data, for instance, his negatives still outstrip his positives, but uh, he still looks, his personal ratings are still better than O'Toole's. They haven't like, they haven't crashed. Uh, you know, he's, he, he's, I think better off than he was at the end of the 2019 campaign. And he was still at the end of this campaign, according to both Nanos and Abacus, the preferred prime minister. So I think he, I think it's possible he could, he could still be thinking about a fourth election, but I think he also could use this time to pick three or four things and say, we are absolutely going to drive these things uh, forward, childcare, affordable housing, climate change, reconciliation, you know, pick whichever four you want. Although I think reconciliation, climate, and uh, childcare would be near the top of his list. Do those things and then, uh, and then hand it off and then say, okay, let's, you know, it's the Liberal Party would probably benefit from a fresh face you know, so let's hand it off. But I, but one way or the, either way, if he wants to run again or, or not, I think he has a chance now in sort of with the pandemic crisis, sort of hopefully receding eventually to make some big moves on things like climate and childcare that, you know, go on his permanent record that look, look really good 20, 30, 40 years from now. If you think about, I know there's always the parallels with his father, but uh, you know, a lot of people in the 70s were looking at the Trudeau years and saying, and eh, no, actually not that much happened here. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's what happened in those last few years that in a way cemented his his kind of legacy in the pantheon of, of prime ministers. Totally. Yeah. Like I'll just just to throw one last thing on there. Yeah. If you read uh, what was written about Pierre Trudeau at the end of like when he had just lost to Joe Clark, the feeling was really disappointment that he hadn't amounted to much. 
Uh, and so that last term ended up really defining Pierre Trudeau's legacy. Um, I don't want to make a prediction or anything like this on, on, on the future for Aaron O'Toole, because I, I mean, it does seem like he will have some issues. He might be able to hold on. Um, and like it was with Andrew Shear, uh, it, it could drag on for a while before the answers get you know clear in terms of what's going to be the future for Aaron O'Toole. But for conservatives, do you think that they will look at what this election was and you hear it from a lot of conservative commentators that when they try to run like liberals, they don't win. It's when they win. It's when they run like conservatives. That's when they win. Um, I think you can question that. You know, you look at the wins that Stephen Harper had. There was a, a tired liberal government, pretty not good liberal leaders, uh, <laughs> a 2011 result that was an anomalous, bizarre result. But do you think that conservatives will take the wrong lesson or the right lesson from this? You know, that going to the center doesn't work. Or, you know, like, I, I'm not sure what the, what they're going to do. And, you know, it's one thing to be someone looking from the outside in. And it's another thing to be a conservative member who might have mm-hmm. voted for Aaron O'Toole because you thought he was going to bring you back to conservative principles. And in the end, ran a bit more like Peter McKay. Right. I think if you're I think Aaron O'Toole could fairly say, uh, look, you can't judge just from this election and say that moderating our views on a few things uh, isn't enough. Um, I don't, I don't know if that you can quite make that. I don't think there's enough to make that conclusion. It's possible that, you know, the same platform or the same kind of moderate approach two years or four years from now could, could work. Uh, because I do think that to win, uh, to win an election in this country, you do have to have a serious climate plan. Uh, and you you do have to take seriously issues like inequality and reconciliation. You can't, you know, people will get, people will be a little reluctant to vote for you if you don't seem to have something to say about those issues, if you aren't credible on those issues. I think the problem for O'Toole is that he, he's, the, the base of the party is probably not in love with the things he did on, on climate, for instance. And uh, as you said, like he ran as one thing during the leadership race and then he ran as another during the general election. And I think that, I think you saw that catch up with him in this campaign because the, 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 on gun control, for instance, the general electorate kind of figured out like, wait a second, who, who, like, what are you exactly? Like, are you what you say you are now? Are you, you know, are, do you actually have Really hard conservative beliefs that you aren't really you're trying to bury right now and I think so I think that hurt him in the general and I think now there could be amongst people who voted for O'Toole in the conservative leadership race uh, a bit of buyer's remorse because he didn't turn out to be what they thought they were going to get and you know winning winning elections can cover up for a lot of those things if he wins then then people who wish he was more conservative can say well at least he's in power and so since he didn't win, I think he is vulnerable, but I, I guess, I don't know, to me, it seems like if, if the, if he's going to be in, if he's going to be in trouble, it's going to be because someone uh, in the party is going to kind of make a push to push him out. Like, I, I don't, it feels like it need, it feels like if the conservative party is going to go in a different direction, someone has to kind of galvanize that feeling. But yeah, I think it is very possible that the, the lesson the Conservative Party takes away from this is that they have to be actually more ideologically and stridently conservative. And I think that could end up 
uh, backfiring on them. If you look at the liberals in opposition, they kind of had to hit rock bottom before they realized what they had to do to get back into power. And the, these guys, these federal conservatives haven't actually hit rock bottom, really, unless you think rock bottom is where they're at right now. And so they're still in a bit of a weird place of, of having to try to kind of figure out which, you know, trying to think like in little adjustments that maybe they just need to make little adjustments to win. And uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that plays out psychologically right now. Yeah, because when I think about, uh, you know, whether, let's say, Peter McKay, how he would have done in this campaign, uh, even if he had ran the exact same campaign and then said the same exact things, uh, I feel like he would have been seen to have been given a mandate from the membership to run this kind of campaign. And so it would have seemed more legitimate. It would have seemed more authentic. And I think that was one of the issues here is that uh, for the conservatives, they know that this was not what Aaron O'Toole was elected on and that the majority of his caucus probably does not support a lot of these policies. So I, I feel like that was maybe a bigger issue. Maybe in another election, if people give him a stamp of approval, then he has that mandate to continue this path. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel that that, that might have been really their biggest problem, that uh, not necessarily the policies, but whether people bought it, I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Like, to me, there was just that feeling of like, like, I understand, I think there was a reaction in, in sort of political elite journalist circles, which was which was sort of, oh, well, you know, he's pivoting, but, you know, politicians have to do this. You have to run to the right to win the party and then you run to the center to win the general election. And I think the, the journalistic political elite kind of level conversation took for granted that people would be okay with that. And, and maybe, maybe O'Toole would have been fine. Maybe he would have gotten through this election, but eventually it catches up to you, right? Like eventually the liberals start digging up what you said when you were running for leader uh, eventually something in your platform that you promised when you were running for leader catches up to you in, in, with gun control. And on something like climate change, I think as much as the Conservatives uh, put forward a credible plan this time, they were still less ambitious than the Liberals. And I think there was still a sort of feeling of like, can you trust the Conservatives to actually pursue this? Like, you know, they've still got people in, in caucus who don't seem super keen on this stuff. Uh, are you sure they would actually go through with this? And uh, I think that, you know, maybe if he runs again in two or, or four years or whatever, and he is still championing the same messages and he's maybe brought other voices into the party to kind of uh, advance that message, then maybe he seems a bit more credible on those things. Um, let's move on to the NDP. Um, so, you know, they're up a little bit. Their popular vote went up by a couple of points. Uh, and we'll see once all the votes are counted, they maybe have gained a net gain of one. Um, but what can the NDP take from this? Because going into this campaign, we were talking a lot about the NDP and its potential. But it, one a, seat, a gain of one seat might be better than losing. Aaron O'Toole seems to have lost two seats, and that's worse. But uh, it, does the NDP say... Well, you know, Singh is still getting, you know, uh, comfortable in the role and people are going to eventually see him as the best prime minister because they like him already. And in two, four years, you know, we'll get that big breakthrough. Uh, I, I'm curious what the NDP takes from this, because it, it clearly did not meet their expectations, but it wasn't a bad enough result that a lot of them might ask themselves questions. I don't know. Yeah, I to me, <laughs> to me, they're the fascinating, like they've been on such a like psychological roller coaster over the last six years like 
They came out of 2015 with 44 seats, but they lost their shot at power. They've lost a bunch of seats. Uh, Tom Mulcair is being criticized for being outflanked to the left, and he's maybe not everyone's favorite new Democrat, so they dump him. They bring in Jagmeet Singh, who seems like kind of a Trudeau-esque figure, uh, but then he has a real, like people kind of forget about this now, he has a really tough start to his leadership, uh, fundraising-wise, polling-wise, and going into the 2019 election, uh, people are like, well, are they going to be able to remain at official party status? Are the Greens going to get ahead of them? And he, had, he then had a couple, he, has, he sort of ends the, the 2019 campaign on a high note. The party does better than you might have thought it was going to do, but it still loses 19 seats. And Singh still kind of celebrates like it's a victory. They come into this election and they seem to have higher hopes. Maybe they're going to win 40 seats. And they end up kind of boosting their popular vote, but flatlining. But it doesn't feel like there is a huge rush uh, it, I mean, I, it's, it's, it seems like there is some discontent, but I don't know how in danger Jagmeet Singh is because it almost, it feels to me like the party is kind of happy with where it is ideologically and ambition wise. And so it's less upset about the result. I don't know whether it would make sense really to dump Jagmeet Singh off after this election. Uh, like, I don't think they should be having a victory parade by any stretch of the imagination. And I think there are serious questions to be asked about the campaign they ran. But once you've sort of got like, you kind of, you're kind of invested now in this guy, maybe it's worth facing another election and seeing if you can build something here like you did with Leighton. Uh, because switching leaders again, I, I don't know whether that's necessarily going to get you any further ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can, I think you can say that he wasn't necessarily why they didn't break through. Um, you know, you could look to the platform, you could look to, you know, some of the things that they were proposing uh, and whether they were seen as, as credible policies that could actually be implemented. But I'm not, sh I'm not sure if you look at this campaign and see, well, the problem was saying. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I can see where you wouldn't uh, have a move to remove them. Maybe just more of an exercise in what does the party have to propose and, and how to build its platform. But it's an interesting because you just the way what you just said about the party being comfortably in its ideological you know skin, mm -hmm. you have a result that is almost identical to the last one, but the NDP feels better about who they are representing and how they're presenting themselves. So they're comfortable with it. And you have the conservatives who have an identical result to the last time, but they don't feel very comfortable about yes. where they have position themselves. And that is more of a problem uh, because you're right with Tom Mulcair in 2015, by any stretch, you know, any historical perspective of the performance of the NDP, 16 seats in Quebec, uh, nearly 20% of the vote, it was a good result, but it left a bad taste in a lot of New Democrats' mouth. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I remember I had a conversation with Rebecca Blakey, who was the party president and you know, Bill Blakey's daughter and, you know, steeped in the history of that party. And, and uh, at that, I think it was at that convention where they don't care. And I said, I was asking her about the NDP and the kind of unique nature of that party. And uh, she said, the one thing I remember she said to me was the NDP wants to win, but it wants that win to be about something. And I think that's, I don't, I think it's too easy to say that, you know, only the NDP cares about ideology and, and its principles, you know, the liberals have principles and ideology too, and sort of the conservatives, but the NDP kind of, they want to make sure they're ideologically right, and then they want to win. Whereas the conservatives and the liberals, probably because they've been in power before, are a bit more open to the idea that they have to move around a bit. 
and they have to uh, they're going to they're going to have to make compromises along the way to get to power. And so, so I think the NDP can sort of stay in that mode. But I think if there was one thing they need to clean up, it's the credibility gap. The, they got they got kind of knocked around in the climate policy world because they came out with a big goal and they made all sorts of kind of commitments in the platform, but they never explained it. They never showed exactly how they were going to get there. They never accounted for how they would hit that climate target. And Singh in a lot of his press conferences would just sort of glide over the details of things like, well, we're going to eliminate for-profit long-term care. Uh, you know, okay, that's an interesting idea. How exactly would you do that? How long would that take? You know, how do you think the provinces are going to react to that? Like you have to put some substance there and you have to show that you have a grasp of how difficult some of these things are and what it would take. And even though I don't think, you know, look, voters don't look at platforms and then uh, read all sorts of deep policy analysis, or at least, you know, the vast majority of voters don't. But I think in hearing the media commentary in, in, in listening to politicians, they can sense when something's not quite credible or that, that the promises being made are kind of unrealistic. And I think that's where Singh uh, runs into trouble. I also wonder whether uh, painting Trudeau as, as this, they, they ran quite negative on Trudeau. And I wonder at, at some point whether that uh, wasn't necessarily the right tone for what they wanted to, for what, for the voters they needed to appeal to. Yeah, because I think that was a, a bit of an issue because a lot of the people that the NEP would be targeting for growth are, are already with the Liberals. And while they might be disappointed with Trudeau, they don't think he's a complete fraud. Um, right. So I think that, you know, that that is a rough, uh, a little bit of a tough message. It, it certainly for the progressives who back the NDP and, you know, are very upset about what the Liberals have done on, um, you know, electoral reform or, you know, falling short on, on reconciliation, that kind of thing. It, I'm sure it was music to their ears, but it's that, that, you know, mushy middle that they had to go after. Uh, the People's Party, 5% of the vote didn't really meet some of its polls. Um, you know, I know there's lots of questions about the enduring, lasting nature of the PPC, whether it's a, a blip or not. But here's my question instead. Does Maxim Bernier and can Maxim Bernier know how to keep a lid on this? Does he have control over the movement that he has unleashed? Because you saw, for example, when Donald Trump uh, gave a speech um, sometime after he had lost the election um, and he was uh, telling his people that they should get vaccinated, he got booed. He, right. you know, I'm wondering if Maxim Bernier is f fully understands um, what the People's Party represents and whether he is actually the leader of it or just the person who happened to lead the party that was tapping into what that group of people was thinking? That's an interesting question. So you would look back on his career as a minister and say he was not the most organized man in the world. And that is, is carrying over here. And so maybe he's not, he doesn't have an iron grip on whatever is going on here. And it doesn't, you know, I don't know how much infrastructure this party really has. Uh, it seems like more of a movement than a political party. But it does need a figurehead. It does need a somebody who's who's has some political talent and is willing to stand up there and say things and represent uh, those grievances. So I don't know that it it necessarily could just go away. Like I, I don't know that he could. He's sort of you know perfectly replaceable, and they could bring somebody else in and and uh, and it would just keep going. I think he probably is bringing something to it. But I don't. Yeah, I don't know that he has a full handle. 
it's hard to control a movement uh, and, and you never quite know where it's going to go. And the question is where, like once the pandemic starts to recede, what does it latch onto next? And I think people who guess that uh, uh, it will disappear after the pandemic goes away, I think that is overly uh, 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 presumptive, I guess, because I think it will, it, it, populist movements can latch onto any number of issues and there could be something else that comes up. And an anti-system, anti-establishment feeling could carry on in all sorts of different ways. So I guess that would be sort of my way of saying that I, I don't think he has a lid on it necessarily. I don't think he you know, can dictate where this goes next. But I do think he has a fair bit of power to sort of direct where it goes next and, and to be that focal point for, you know, whatever the, whatever the angst is that's out there. I wonder if he, I, I wasn't watching a lot of his, um, you know, campaign things. I wonder if he brought up supply management. <laughs> I think, I think they've moved past supply management, but you know, like they'll find they like, you know, there's always been populist movements. They always can flare up. They flare up at different times and they're over sort of different issues. And, you know, whether it's immigration next or climate policy or, you know, economic change, or it could be, it could be any number of things. And, you know, I think also, we also have to be a bit humbled here by the fact that like in 2019, a lot of us, including me, were like, well, that's that. The People's Party was a fun little ride, but it's over now. And here we are with, you know, them at 5% and uh, polling at double what the, what the Greens got. The Bloc Québécois, their campaign, um, you know, it, it was just kind of a listless campaign that they seem to be dropping down to their base of support. Um, and they were rejuvenated by that English language debate question. Uh, it made the Bloc relevant for, you know, the last two weeks because it felt for a lot of Francophone Quebecers that, um, they were being under attack and the bloc is the, you know, the party that can uh, defend them, I guess. But rather than talk about the, the bloc's campaign itself, um, you know, you wrote about the uh, potential for future minority governments and the bloc Quebecois, the fact that it's now seems to be back. It has two consecutive elections where it's a force. It's taking nearly half the seats off the table in Quebec. Minority governments seem to be much more likely than majority governments now. So, you were wrote about this to, and just how is this going to change things? Do do the parties need to start rethinking about what it is uh, to make parliament work? Yeah, I mean, well, it, I guess it remains to be seen whether they actually will change. But I do think they need to change because if this is the norm, if we're probably going to have minority parliaments for the foreseeable future, or they're going to happen more often than not, I don't think we can. I don't, I don't know that the electorate and that the political system can really handle the idea that we're gonna have elections every two years. The default position can't be, well, a minority only lasts two years. So, you know, that's kind of your baseline expectation. Um, we'll be nice for a year seen, and then we'll, we'll fall yeah. on each other for the last six months. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't, and I don't think parliament can handle kind of constant saber rattling and brinksmanship and threats of election. And I just think, I just don't think the system can handle it. I, I think it'll undermine public faith in, in parliament. And I think ultimately it'll, it will lead to uh, less effective government. And so I don't know that parties need to, like, I don't know if we're ever gonna get to a point where coalitions are the norm. 
you know, where governments are formed by two party, two or more parties, and they they share spots in cabinet. But it does feel like on a kind of day-to-day basis, the parties need to get much better at figuring out as much as they want to yell at each other, uh, they have to figure out how to make parliament function and get things moving. Uh, they have to figure out how to live with each other, essentially. And then on a larger level, uh, I wonder if governments and parties need to move towards more formal agreements on, on uh, legislation and what's going to happen and how things are going to work. Because right now, we kind of function on a, a, a week-to-week uh, bill-to-bill basis. Government puts forward a bill, and then it sees who's going to agree to it and whether it needs to make any compromises. And that, you know, that's a pretty acrimonious, like that's a pretty kind of acrimonious, constant uh, uh, back and forth way of doing things. And, you know, I I don't know that necessarily they need to sign uh, what they call confidence and supply agreements that kind of govern two or four years of of parliament, but like there just needs, there seems to be kind of an opening here for, you know, in this context, for instance, the Liberals, the NDP to sit down and say, all right, can we agree on, you know, six things we're going to do over the next two years? And then we'll revisit and then we'll, you know, we'll make sure we get those things done. And we'll also agree on kind of how Parliament's going to go or, you know, or what we'll do together to make sure things keep functioning. Uh, You know, some kind of, of working arrangement instead of kind of this ad hoc chaos Uh, and this game of chicken that we have at the moment. Is the solution to adopt the electoral system of (laughs) Baden-Württemberg? Well, I know that you love that. I mean, obviously that region of Germany is very well governed uh, and is sort of a beacon to to Democrats across the world. I assume so. Uh, But I don't think, uh, more seriously, I don't think electoral reform is in the cards. Uh, I know people are going to say proportional representation, this is its moment, but... Uh, that 2018 uh, British Columbia referendum on proportional representation where it lost, I think that really took the legs out from underneath the reform movement. I think if, I just don't know how you can, you can adopt it federally if you already have one province on the record as saying it doesn't want it provincially. And there's just no party consensus. If the federal conservative party came out tomorrow though and said, hey, you know what? We've won the popular vote uh, uh, as, as problematic a metric as that might be. Uh, in the last two elections. So, hey, we think proportional representation would be a good idea. If that happened, then maybe you'd have some political consensus and you could start to build something and move forward, but uh, they're not gonna do that. And short of political consensus, uh, I think the system is gonna stay, I think first past the post is gonna stay in place. I actually think there are a lot of reasons to keep it in place, uh, but uh, that just means that you have to fix the way Kind of the parties work within that system to ensure that you know it's not complete madness hopefully the the madness uh for the next couple of years will die down a little bit um and uh you know maybe we won't have an election as soon as we all think but maybe we will i don't know we'll have to wait and see well i can understand why you might be biased in favor of elections and we i should will be voting watching, every day i will be i will be watching you for your agitating for parliament to fall but uh <laughs> Uh, there will be other elections, Eric. They just will happen provincially. And it would be nice if maybe the federal uh, parliament took a break from having elections for a little while. All right. That sounds fine. All right. Well, thanks so much, Aaron. I really appreciate you taking some time uh, to uh, speak to me today. Always a pleasure, Eric.
Hey, I'm Brett Chang. And I'm Jay Rosenthal. And we're here to tell you about Canada's top and only and only daily business news podcast. It's called The Peak Daily, and every morning we get you up to speed on the need-to-know Canadian and global business stories. And we do it without all the jargon that can make business news a little... A little dull? Dull, exactly. And did you mention we do it all in just seven minutes? Six minutes if we fast-forward through all of your dad jokes. Well, I prefer to call them rad jokes, Brett. See what I mean? Come for the daily business news, stay for the dad jokes. Join us and thousands of Peak Pals every morning to start your day smarter. Find The Peak Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, time for questions and answers. I got this one from uh, Balch on Twitter. There seems to be a narrative that PPC was a spoiler for the Conservatives. Is there any data to back that up? I think this is a big question that uh, we're going to need to see some post-election polling data to have a a much better grasp of it. And uh, it is the kind of question that I want to delve into in much more detail in uh, a future article on on the writ.ca. But I think that we can definitely say there are some ridings where the PPC vote did take away conservative votes and enough of them to cost the conservatives the seat. David Coletto, uh, the CEO of Abacus Data, he tweeted that 28% of the PPC vote was from the conservatives. A big chunk of it was people who voted for the PPC back in 2019, and about a tenth of the PPC vote were new voters, which was higher than the conservatives and the liberals, but less than the NDP, which makes sense. The NDP has younger voters. But if we use that 28% as our guiding post, we can identify a few ridings where at least that many votes uh, was enough to make the difference. Again, I'd like to do a much more in-depth review of this. Um, And this is before all the mail ballots have been counted. So some of these numbers might change. But let's look at four examples I could find. So there's Kitchener South Hespler. The Liberals won this by about 670 votes. But there were 3,300 People's Party votes. 28% of 3,300 is just over 900 votes. So if the PPC did take 900 votes away from the Conservatives in Kitchener-South Hespler, that is enough that they would have won that seat. It's the same thing in Kitchener-Conestoga. The margin there is under 200 votes, and the PPC had 3,600 votes. And 28% of 3,600 votes is just over 1,000. So there, that's a very obvious example of the PBC taking many more votes than than the Conservatives needed to win. It's interesting to me that both of these Kitchener seats um, seem to have been impacted by the PPC. Uh, two other ones uh, I could find was Sault Ste. Marie. Again, 250 vote margin, about 1,900 votes for the PPC. And uh, even if you have that low mark, which that abacus number seems to me low, because some pollsters seem to suggest that maybe more of the PPC vote came from the Conservatives. But if it's 28%, you're still talking about over 500 votes in Sault Ste. Marie, many more than the the margin between the Liberals and the Conservatives. And then finally, Tuareg-Yaya, which at the last count that I saw, the gap was only 93 votes. Uh, There was 1,100 for the PPC. So that's, you know, about 300 at least that would have come from the Conservatives. So there are certainly some ridings that the Conservatives lost because of the PPC. And in some of these, it would be more, right? It's not going to be 28% in every single riding. In some areas, more conservatives would have went over to the PPC. In some areas, fewer would have. But I think it's undeniable that the PPC cost the conservative seats. What I don't know is if they cost them enough to have a consequential outcome on the election. Uh, You can't just take the PPC vote, add it to the conservative vote, and say that was a vote split. Just in the same way that you can't do that with NDP or Green votes when you're looking at the Liberals. Uh, Not all of those votes belong to the bigger parties 
And for a lot of those people, they would go elsewhere or they would stay home rather than vote for either the Liberals or the Conservatives. But uh, this is something that I think we're going to have to take a, a deeper look at because it was definitely a big story in this campaign. David Cahey asks, what should we make of the green win in Kitchener Centre? Any feel for whether they'll be able to hold on to that seat? So Kitchener Centre is, in a way, the seat that makes the green election look not so bad. Because if it wasn't for Kitchener Centre, the Greens would be reduced just to Elizabeth May again. Unless Paul Manley ends up winning Nanaimo Ladysmith once the mail ballots are counted. But Kitchener Centre was a little bit of an asterisk of a seat, uh, because the Liberals, of course, had Raj Saini, who was their candidate. He suspended his campaign pretty early on, but after the nomination deadline. And a lot of people didn't vote for the Liberals because of that. A lot of people probably already voted for the Liberals, and so their vote was locked in by mail, or they didn't know the story and cast their ballot for the Liberals anyway. The result in that seat, at least again, based on the preliminary results, Mike Morris of the Greens had 35%, so his vote went up nine points from the last election. The Conservatives were at 24%, that was no different. The NDP was at 17, that was a gain of six. The Liberals were at 16%. They still got 16% of the vote, so the Liberal vote dropped by 21 percentage points. That's not going to happen in a regular election. So for the Greens to hold on to Kitchener Centre, Mike Morris needs to hold on to his 35%. 35% is not a very big number to win a seat. Uh, it means that you're going to be fighting to hold a seat. So he needs to grow that, or at least not lose a lot. Because in a normal election, if the Liberals have a normal candidate, the Liberals are probably going to get 30-35% of the vote. So I don't think the Greens should take this as a sign that Kitchener Centre is part of a Green wave. It was a weird riding because of the suspension of the Liberal candidate campaign. I think that for the Greens, this is an opportunity. Mike Morris is going to have all the advantages of being an incumbent, and he can set down some roots that can pay off in the future. Greens have tended to be difficult to defeat once they're incumbents. Um, So it's an opportunity, but they can't take this one for granted. I think a lot of the votes that went to the Greens in this campaign will go back to the Liberals in a normal election. The question is how many. I got this question from two different people on Twitter, uh, Colin at Star Chords, and Connor, at Connor D. Peters, uh, what is the most surprising sea change to you? What do you see as some of the biggest upsets? There are mail ballots to still count. Maybe not enough to make a difference, but if you're watching the live stream that I did on Monday night, which, by the way, I had a lot of fun doing it, and I hope those of you that tuned in enjoyed it. I think I'll do it again in, in future elections, provincial elections, that kind of thing. Um, but if you watch that, the one that we talked about a lot was Costa Bay's Central Notre Dame in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, this was a riding that the Conservatives are leading. Not a huge lead. They have a lead of five or 600 votes, the last I saw. But that was a surprise. No one saw that coming. A lot of the other shifts that we saw, see changes here or there, not really shocking. They're ridings that we all thought were ones to watch. Um, maybe some of the surprise was the... Uh, the two Richmond Steveston ridings, the Liberals one in British Columbia and Markham Unionville in Toronto. These are ridings with large Chinese Canadian communities, and they seem to have uh, withstood the swing to the Liberals over the last few elections in the suburban areas. But in this campaign, they didn't. They went over to the Liberals pretty big. So I think that's an interesting one, uh, and the kind of thing that you can't pick up in a regional swing model, for example. But anyway, Coast of Bay, Central Notre Dame in Newfoundland and Labrador, to me, was the biggest surprise. Um, Scott Sims has been the MP 
for that area, and the boundaries have changed quite significantly, but he has been the MP for that area since 2004, which means he survived the cull in 2011 and the minority years of, you know, in 2006, 2008. Um, And the last time part of this riding was blue was when it voted for the PCs back in 1997. You know, Sims won this riding by 13 points in 2019. He won it by 57 points in 2015, and he lost it. It's a bit of a shock. The Conservatives haven't had a lot of luck in Newfoundland and Labrador for a long time. The last time they won a seat in the province was back in 2011 when they won in Labrador, so not on Newfoundland itself. Uh, so that was a big surprise, and and I'm not really sure why. Not really sure why, but it's uh, it, it was a bit of a shock, and I guess that's why it was a bit of a shock. All right, since the results of the 2021 election were so similar to those of the 2019 vote, I wanted to take a look at the last time we saw two elections with nearly identical outcomes. So on this week's installment of the Every Election Project, let's delve into the federal election held on November 8, 1965. Lester Pearson's Liberals had come to power in 1963 after defeating John Diefenbaker's Progressive Conservatives, who had been reduced to a minority government the year before. Pearson's first few years of navigating his own minority government weren't very easy, and they were made more difficult by some scandals within his cabinet and some heightened tensions with the provinces. His opponent across the aisle was still Diefenbaker, who was fighting off calls from within his own party to step down from the leadership. The Liberals thought that these internal divisions made the PCs vulnerable and that they could win a majority with an early election call. But to quote from Dynasties and Interludes, Pearson's weaknesses as a campaigner were now well known, and the absence of any clear issue on which to base an election call increased the possibility that an early election strategy might backfire. That sounds familiar. Nevertheless, the Liberals decided to go to the polls early. Pearson would lead his party for the fourth time, while Diefenbaker would mount his fifth campaign as PC leader. The New Democrats at this time were still led by Tommy Douglas, while Social Credit, which had won the third most seats in 1963, had split into a Western rump led by Robert Thompson and a Quebec wing led by Réal Cahouette. The Liberals campaigned on the need for a majority government, but Pearson didn't venture out of Ottawa much. He was running on his record in office and pitched some new programs like universal health insurance. Diefenbaker was a better campaigner than Pearson and went after the scandals within the Liberal government. In the end, the Liberals did not get the majority they were hoping for. In fact, the results were nearly identical to 1963. The Liberals won 131 seats, a gain of three seats, and they took 40% of the vote. They dropped just one point in the popular vote. The Progressive Conservatives won 97 seats, a gain of four, and their popular vote was unchanged at 32%. The NDP jumped four seats to 21, and their popular vote went up five points to 18%, while the combination of the Ralliement des Créditistes and the Social Credit took 14 seats, that was down 10, and their popular vote dropped by 4.8%. That was maybe the bigger shift. But the Liberals only gained three seats, the PCs only gained four seats. There really wasn't a lot of movement. It was a parliament that looked a lot like the one that was elected in 1963. The Liberals were able to hold on with very strong results in Quebec and a majority of seats in Ontario, but they suffered losses in Nova Scotia and Western Canada that were only made up by their gains in Quebec. The PCs nearly swept Western Canada and parts of the Maritimes, but managed only 33 seats in Ontario and Quebec, a third of what the Liberals had. The result meant the end for both Pearson and Diefenbaker, though both would stay on for a few more years. 
Diefenbaker didn't go quietly, running in the leadership race that was meant to replace him, but Robert Stanfield would take over the PCs in 1967. Tommy Douglas would lead the NDP into one more election, while Cowett would solidify his hold on social credit. With the support from the NDP, Pearson's government brought in Medicare and continued the work on the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism. But by 1967, it was obvious a change was needed to take the party forward, and the following year, Pierre Trudeau became Liberal leader and Prime Minister. He'd lead the Liberals into a sweeping victory in the 1968 federal election. That'll be it for the podcast this week. There'll be plenty more to come as I parse through the results from this election and turn my focus on uh, the upcoming provincial elections and whatever federal leadership races might get kicked off in the next few weeks or months. So check out therit.ca for more analysis. And if you haven't already, please consider buying a subscription to get access to all the content on the site. It's really appreciated. All right. Have a good weekend, the first post-election weekend. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.